Hello and welcome to the Fundamental Value Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. Uh, on today's episode, I'm super lucky to be joined by Andrew Levine, who is the CEO of the Coinos Group. Um, and so before we begin, excited to announce that the podcast is now available on Cointelegraph magazine. And so you can always catch our episodes and other deep explorations of blockchain trends on Cointelegraph magazine at www.cointelegraph.com slash magazine. And as a reminder to all of our listeners, nothing we say here is investment advice, especially anything coming from me. You definitely don't want to listen to me. So with that said, Andrew, it's so great to have you on. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. And I'm just going to piggyback on that disclaimer. No investment <laughs> and, advice here either. Yeah, don't listen to either of us. So, yeah, uh, please. So you're actually the the second guest in a row uh, that we've had uh, that came from uh, you know a law background, worked in law, and and somehow found your way into uh, digital assets. So I'm wondering, you know, why did you start in law, and you know how did that lead you down the rabbit hole? Well, it's it's funny. I've been thinking about that a lot lately, and I'm actually learning a lot about my own history lately because I'm listening to this book out of the ether. And the thing is that I went to law school, I passed the bar in New York and New Jersey, and I immediately was like, I'm not practicing law. In fact, in the second year of law school, I'd already made the decision that I really didn't want to practice law. And that was the same year that I actually took my intellectual property course with a guy, uh, a guy named Professor Carroll. And he was actually counsel at the Creative Commons which is the organization that was created by Lawrence Lessig uh, to like pioneer open source software development. And so he taught us about open source software. And that's where I learned about open source software. And that's when I was like, no, this, this is how law should be. Not all these other classes that I'm taking. Uh, this is archaic nonsense where we're writing stuff down on paper. Uh, and Lawrence Lessig and the Creative Commons was hugely inspirational to smart contracts, to Ethereum, to the entire space. And so I didn't even know it at the time, but I was kind of being indoctrinated into blockchain back in 2006 before the industry even existed. And so, yes, I have a background in law, but I pretty much immediately vacated that industry uh, and was looking uh, to get involved in technology. And... Um, so when Bitcoin came along, I was kind of primed for it and read the white paper, got super excited. Ethereum white paper, same thing. And so I've been involved in the industry ever since. And so did you actually, were you one of the people that read the Bitcoin white paper and just went straight in? Because I mean, a lot of the guests, we hear stories of, oh, I read the Bitcoin white paper. And then four years later, when Bitcoin had, you know, gone up 400x, I discovered Bitcoin again. Were you were you one of the, the early folks that, you know, you know, whenever you saw it, were like, this is it. I get it. I understand it. Did it take time for you to wrap your head around, you know, digital assets? It certainly took my, took time to wrap my head around. The moment I read it, I love getting my mind blown. And I love seeing something that comes out of left field that I feel like, you know, was beyond my ability to conceptualize. And I knew when I read it that there was that there was a lot of stuff in there I didn't understand and that excited me. Um, the idea that you could create money using software felt resonated very deeply with me and it felt right and it felt possible. Um, as a non-technical person, I didn't 
feel comfortable accessing the technology. Mount Gox scared me, turns out for good reason. But to, you know, if I'm being honest, it was more the fact that it was just beyond my technical skills. And so, yes, I was that person. I remember at $9, I tried mining. I, I, you couldn't mine profitably even at $9 as a regular person. And I remember distinctly thinking, well, it's probably overpriced at $9. And so I was one of those people who... And, I love and, how you couldn't mine profitably at $9. It's so funny, that perspective, right? You know, yeah. when it was $9 and it cost you $10 to mine, you're losing money, right? So Yeah. Uh, I, I had a GPU that I hacked to my laptop um, and it was pegged at 100% all night. And I mined a tiny, tiny fraction of Bitcoin at $9. And so I figured this is overpriced. This is crazy. I just spent dollars in in electricity to mine this thing you know when it's on exchanges then Did you it, even mine a full bitcoin or was it just so short you no know, they, they, a tiny fraction a really tiny fraction like yeah. zero 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 right um as part of like a mining got it, pool got it, got it, got it. Um, but you know, it's funny, I, right. I, I'm actually a little proud of my analysis because my analysis was kind of spot on, which was, you know what? I don't trust myself with this technology. Once it's user-friendly, once it's on exchanges that I feel comfortable using and trusting, that's when I'll get involved. And that's ultimately what happened. And that I think was ultimately a very positive green flag. I mean, we're talking hundreds of dollars. So while I didn't get in at nine, you know, I did acquire Bitcoin at ridiculously low prices and I sold it at ridiculously low prices as well. I don't have nearly as much as I could have and I wish I had. It's funny. When I sold a lot of my Bitcoin in 2017 at 10 grand, I felt really smart. Yeah, uh, genius. <laughs> you know, and, and I was really smart for a few years. So it's it's you know, it's all a matter of perspective, right? Yeah. And so can you tell us about your first full-time foray into the crypto space? Was that at Steemit? And can you kind of tell us how that came to be? Yeah, it was. So part can of you the also reason tell I... listeners what Steemit is as well? Because I'm sure a lot of people know, but some some probably also. Oh, abso- absolutely. Yeah. So th- the idea behind Steemit was reddit.com powered by a blockchain. Um, So the posts would be on the blockchain and then the users would vote on posts and uh, the blockchain would distribute tokens based on the votes of the users. And so, and it was launched in 2016. It was a top five crypto the year that it launched and it was fearless. And so these were things that attracted me to it. I had part of what brought me to the blockchain space, in addition to my just interest in the technology, was that I had been an investor in Tesla and it had been a very profitable investment, you know, after four years of holding it. And so I thought, you know, I had potential as an investor. And so I was looking for my next Tesla. And so when Bitcoin came around and Ethereum came around, I was I was very much in the mindset of an investor thinking, how can I leverage my capital to provide outsized returns so that I don't need to work anymore? But it was still not clear to me where I could do work myself um, to earn tokens. Like what blockchain could I be a part of? Could I directly add value to as a non-technical user? And then Steam came along uh, and it had no fees. And I loved creating content. I love 
uh, making videos, and it gave me an outlet for multiple passions. It enabled me to touch a blockchain and use a blockchain because I think that that's the best way to understand kind of anything is to actually use it and touch it. Um, and it stoked my interest as an amateur economist because I believe that the best way to understand economics is to touch the economy uh, and to like quantize the economy which is part of what attracts me to blockchain as well, is that all of the economic parameters are hard-coded as opposed to like the amorphous kind of made-up rules that we all kind of believe uh, in the regular economy. You know, um, if you believe in Austrian economics, those rules can govern an economy. If you believe in Keynesian economics, those rules can, you know, uh, so our, our beliefs have a strong influence over the outcome of the economy. Uh, and so, by codifying the rules, um, we can actually study economics in a new and kind of interesting way. Psychology is still a factor, um, but at least we have code that we can look at and, and token behaviors that we can look at. And so that's what attracted me to Steam. And I, and I also really liked that there was a company there, that there was an American company that was building the software that was running Steamit.com. Um, and that I could go work for. And so I really angled to get a job there. And I basically said, I'll do whatever you need done. I'll be your community manager. And that's what they originally hired me on for as a community manager. The um, community manager with a law degree. Yes. And they couldn't have cared less. Like I wrote this long letter to Ned being like, I have a law degree. I started up my company. I don't think he read it. I think he was like, you're popular in the community. Dan Larimer likes you come on in part-time and you could be our community manager. And like the day I start working, Dan Larimer resigns. And they're like, holy shit, somebody needs to tell the public about what's happening. And I was like, I'll do it, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'll write, I like writing, uh, I'm the content guy, right? And so that's pretty much where I, um, started acting as kind of the head of communications. And that's what I love about the startup world and the crypto world is that if you have an entrepreneurial mindset, you can grow extremely fast. I mean, look at me. I started in 2016 as a community manager and now I'm CEO working with the very same team of blockchain engineers who built and upgraded the Steam blockchain. So, And so... What was your experience like at Steemit? You know, what what were, you know, kind of your favorite parts and least favorite parts? And then, you know, obviously, you know where I'm going to go next with this, but let's let's keep this story at your first few years. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it's ups and downs. Um, it, it, it's a real wild ride. You've got the stress of startup life. You've got the stress and the uncertainty of the crypto space where you're building technologies that are totally new. Um, you know, with Steemit and the Steam blockchain, we were building a blockchain and, and a web application uh, leveraging technologies that were totally new. There was no other front end with the level of traffic and usage that is also interfacing with a blockchain with unprecedented traffic and usage. Um, you know, these, these are all new things. And so we had to be constantly building new software. And it was really frustrating to me, if you don't mind me venting, uh, how little credit the Steam blockchain developers got 
Because at the end of the day, all anybody ever saw was steamit.com. And they didn't see the amazing work that these guys were doing on the blockchain side, which was 90% of the work that we were doing to scale the infrastructure. Right. You, I mean, I mean, as somebody who looked at Steemit, you never thought about that, right? Like you, you wouldn't think about, you thought like, oh, how much Steam has this person received for their post? Not how is this actually functioning on the back end? Yeah. Yeah. There's this myth that I think is perpetuated by a lot of the leaders, project leaders in the space, that once you launch a blockchain, it just works and it's magic and everything's great. It can never break because if it could ever break, that would mean that the price might go down. And so nobody, everybody wants to pretend that this, this technology is magic, but man, does it break. And when it breaks, it's bad. And the more it grows and the more the usage grows, the more likely it is to break. And so it's this, it's a constant battle to make sure that if things break, the damage isn't so bad, that you can reboot, you can re-index super fast, that the impact is mitigated or, or, um, or that the blockchain doesn't break, but some, some part of the infrastructure doesn't break. You know, so for example, with Steam, it was super robust. Um, but every once in a while, um, something bad would happen and the blockchain would halt, which would mean that blocks would stop being produced. And that was a defense mechanism that's built into it. It's probably built into many blockchains where you have this logic that says, hey, if any of these illegal things happen, like illegal, like against the rules, uh, somebody sends a transaction they're not supposed to send, you know, just stop, just clamp down. Everything stops. We protect the database, um, but nothing new can happen, you know? And so that was the worst, you know, it was very robust in the sense that that was the worst thing that could really happen or that ever did happen because theoretically anything's possible. Um, but that's still really bad. And if your blockchain stops producing blocks for a long enough period of time, that's really bad. Um, and so we learned a, a ton of lot, and those were insanely stressful. I mean, when those things happen, the block, the blockchain halts for 15 minutes. This is what the conversation is like. I'll let you uh, in on the inside of a blockchain team. Um, the blockchain halted. Why? We don't know. How long is it going to take to fix? We don't know. What if we can't fix it? We don't know. Is it possible that it's unfixable? <laughs> yes. And then like two hours later, we fix it. <laughs> um, but it, it's tremendous uncertainty. And then when you fix it, it's great, right? Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it, well, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's the same, look, we don't have a blockchain, but we have a lot of developers and it's the same thing. It's like, you know, is this fixable? Developers never want to give you a timeline and they never want to give you a definitive answer. The last thing a developer wants to do is tell you it's going to be done in two days and it takes three days. So I find that, you know, you always get this extremely elongated timeline of, of, of things that it always gets delivered first. But it's funny that you see that in blockchain networks too. I guess it makes sense. 100%. And if they say that it's going to take two days in blockchain, it's going to take two months. There's a, <laughs> there's a different, it's even longer, but yeah. So, so you have the, the, the volatility and risk uh, and stress of startup life. Then you've got this, this blockchain component, which, which, uh, magnifies everything. And then you have the volatility of the price as well, 
Um, and you know, that seems like a positive to people, but you know, the price goes up now, all of a sudden you're a token holding company. You know, you just made more money than you could ever make selling a product in an hour. Uh, then the price collapses and now you don't know if you're going to make payroll for the next two months. And so this is insane. I mean, starting a startup is practically insane. And now we're talking about multiplying all of these things. And so uh, that was what the experience was like. Naturally, it led to like very high highs and very low lows, which, you know, we're going to talk more about. But for us at Coinos Group, we got so many great learning experiences out, out of that. And, and we've taken those lessons and really integrated them into every part of this business from our corporate structure to the design of the architecture. All of the stuff that we've done is with a specific aim of mitigating the, the, all of those challenges so that we can at least behave like a startup. <laughs> and and so the next part of the story, and many in this space know of this, and I think you said it perfectly, which is you got sunned. In other words, <laughs> Justin's son came in, and uh, tell us what happened. I'm I, I'm going to leave it to you. I want to I want to hear it from the for, for, from your mouth directly. Oh man, okay. <clears throat> well, Justin's son is the founder of the Tron Network, um, which from the outset was controversial because it's known pretty widely that um, actually it's, it's obviously true that aspect that, that parts of the Tron white paper were directly plagiarized from the Ethereum white paper. Um, that's verifiable. I think what's, what's lesser known is that I believe that it was also strongly plagiarized the steam blockchain. Because if you go back and you look at the original Tron white paper, it had all of this reference to content. Uh, it was going to be this content blockchain. And that's because Steam had, had come out. Uh, and, you know, people find this hard to believe, but it had a massive market cap. There was a ton of excitement. Steam was one of, if not the first blockchains to implement proof of stake. Um, and so, you know... Steam had delegated proof of stake. Tron had delegated proof of stake. Ethereum didn't have delegated proof of stake. So where did they copy that from? So anyway, um, but Justin Sun is not an engineer. You know, he cobbled together pieces from the space and he put out the Tron white paper and raised a gazillion dollars. And then he just paid engineers to actually implement something. And, uh, you know, Tron made, made a ton of money that way. My light just fell. <laughs> Sorry, one second. Okay, we're this upgrading though. Look, our podcast guests now have lighting and all sorts of cool yeah. stuff. We don't, uh, you don't have any of this yet. But Andrew's inspired me. Starting with my next episode or or next few episodes, I will hopefully have some better lighting. So you can give Andrew credit on that for the inspiration. But clearly, it can cause problems in the middle there of an episode. But I don't think we should edit this out because I think this. Uh, I think this is great. It shows you that we're all human here. Yes. Um, so back to back to getting you know sunned. I mean, I think that was Justin Sun punishing you for talking poorly. Yeah, about him. exactly. So, uh, he knows. Know. He's he's always listening. So, I mean, I'm trying. I, you know, it's such a a, a a long saga that I really want to you know just condense really quick because it go it it goes all the way back to the origins of Steam. 
And this was a, a, a lesson that we learned and applied in, in Koinos Group. Um, but how you launch matters. Uh, and one of the things that Steemit did that I actually viewed as a positive, and I don't hold it against them, is that they acquired, they did a, a pre-mine. They acquired a large stake kind of before anybody else could. And they did that to avoid being deemed a security. And what that meant was that the company had a very large stake. And what happened is that Justin Sun and the CEO of Steemit negotiated a deal whereby Justin Sun or Tron um, would acquire that stake as well as the as Steam at the company and the Steam blockchain development team, and you know, I, I think something that kind of surprises people is you know they assume that because me and my teammates were all there for so long. I mean, some of my teammates literally, uh, one of my teammates co-founded Steemit, but he resigned a year prior to the Justin Sun incident after we laid off, after Steemit laid off 70% of its staff, leaving just the founders of Coinos Group. So he actually resigned a year prior and joined us later. Um, but everybody else were not shareholders in the company. Uh, and so we didn't have a right to know what was happening with the company. And it would have been nice if we'd been better informed, but we didn't, we, we didn't have that right. And so we largely found out with the community uh, that this deal was happening. Um, and we found out with their kind of bizarre announcements that they intended to move Steam to Tron, uh, which didn't really make sense. And that was just the beginning of decisions and announcements that were made kind of without our participation that defied logic. And, and, I, and I think the best way to sum it up is that they thought that they could buy a community and they thought that they could buy people and that the technology mattered more, the te technology and money m mattered more than the people. And I certainly don't believe that's true. And so what happened was we all resigned. Uh, the community hard forked Steam and started the Hive blockchain. And so the community went there. We went to Coinos Group and we started working on Coinos. Yeah. And so, Really quickly, with the Hive blockchain, did any developers go to Hive or was it just community members that were developing? Like who actually went and, and, and is working on that project? It was all community developers. The Steam blockchain development team all ultimately went to Coinos Group and started Coinos Group. I think what, what was basically happening at the time was, you know, in these decentralized ecosystems, it's very hard to trust people. So we knew us. We trusted us. We were asking ourselves, what can we do for the community? And so we started thinking about the next blockchain that we wanted to build. And at first, we were thinking very much along the lines of a social blockchain, a next generation of the Steam blockchain, because what matters most to us is onboarding common people 
to the decentralized space. And yeah, and there was this community effort to fork the Hive blockchain. But in our experience, community efforts often don't succeed. They rarely succeed. And so it was actually super exciting to see that this entirely community effort was able to succeed and was able to get this blockchain up and running. Now, granted, it was a fork of our blockchain and so relied entirely on all the work that we'd done. Uh, But when this happened, now we were like, well, we don't need to do that. We can work on the next thing. Where is the space going in two years, in three years? Uh, There are obvious constraints on what can be done with Steam. Um, So what is the Steam community, the Hive community? What are they going to need next? And as we went down that road, what we found that was uh, pretty interesting was that what they're going to need is what everybody is going to need. There is a big gap in the space, um, specifically the feeless gap um, and and a number of other kind of missing pieces. And so we set about building a solution that, that addresses those problems. And that's Coinos. Yeah. And so, you know, why did you decide, you know, why were you like so, I guess, set on launching another layer one <laughs> protocol? And and if you could describe Coinos, you know, what's the pitch for Coinos in two or three, you know, sentences? I know you mentioned it's a feeless blockchain. I mean, is that is that really the pitch? But I'll let you kind of take both of those. Yeah, sure. Um, we didn't we didn't really want to launch another uh, layer one blockchain. Um after we decided not to do a social blockchain, then it was to a second layer solution. That was where our mind went. We, you know, we feel that the space really is missing great second layer tooling. You know, most of the second layer tooling that's happening in the space is really about scaling. Um, but there's, we think that there are actually better uses for the second layer if you have a scalable first layer, and that is in stuff like. Um, usernames, uh, more of the social uh, components to applications. That's a great space for for the, the second layer. Uh, but but ultimately, but ultimately, we felt that there was no first layer that could do our second layer solutions justice. And we felt we did have the skills, experience, and knowledge to implement that first layer solution. And. I don't know. The question brings to like makes me want to channel one of my co-founders, Steve Gerbino, who's one of our blockchain architects, uh, and he's just like one of the funniest people that I know. And I feel like he would just say, "Like, bro, who doesn't want to launch Bitcoin? You know, who doesn't want to who doesn't want to launch the next Bitcoin, bro? Come on!" Uh, but that you know, that's mainly a joke. Uh, um, of, of course, who doesn't dream? Uh, when they when they read the Bitcoin white paper and the Ethereum white paper and are moved by the ideas proposed in there, um, well, okay, who doesn't? That's the wrong way to pay. We people like us, we immediately think, I wish I could have been a part of that, and you know, so we we really respect uh, the, that work, and we we view Coinos as in addition to that space, not a competitor to those pieces. It's an alternative. And to get to the pitch, it's a feeless alternative. So it's a blockchain with smart contracts 
that you can use, that you can able, enable your end users to use uh, without requiring that they pay fees for every little thing they do. So that is the central pitch. The way that we implement the feelessness is actually largely the same way that we do it on Steam and on Hive. So it's not, the, it's not actually the most innovative feature. Um, the rest of the pitch really centers around the upgradability of the blockchain. Uh, any piece of the system can be upgraded, patched, upgraded, changed, modified without a hard fork. Um, and so it can be upgraded much like an operating system where if you want to change the consensus algorithm, the community can change the consensus algorithm without a hard fork. If you want to modify governance, if you want to modify inflation, these can all be modified without a hard fork. So that's a, that's a really big deal. And then the other major value proposition is multi-language support, is enabling developers to write microservices, access client libraries, and most importantly, write smart contracts in the programming languages that they already know and love. And so we've developed core innovations uh, along those fronts that work together to offer those features and also work in with the feelessness to ensure that not only can you use the blockchain for free, but you can actually do a decent amount. You can actually do many things on the blockchain uh, without having to pay a fee and, and simply by holding coin. And so one of a, a good friend of a, both of ours, uh, John Rice, is the editor-in-chief of Cointelegraph, a little shout out here. You know, he helped out a few on a few of these questions. But John wants to know why are you so mad at hard forks? Why why is modular upgradability so you know such a key feature? Why don't you like hard forks? <laughs> we are. That is true. John John is right. Uh, we hate hard forks. We had to do twenty three of them. That's why um, Steam not being a general per so so the decision that was basically made with Steam was. Make it fast by forgoing a virtual machine and forgoing smart contracts. And so instead, what you do is you implement all of the logic, which, which can be thought of as smart contracts, but you implement them natively. And so it just runs directly on the machine, not in a virtual machine. And if you want to fix anything, all you have to do is hard fork. And it was believed that because Steam was application specific, had this limited use case that you really wouldn't need to hard fork ever. This was what Dan Larimer believed. Uh, so, so Dan Larimer and Vitalik Buterin at the uh, beginning of kind of the blockchain wars had an argument. Uh, and, and the argument was about whether a fully general purpose blockchain was the way to go or whether lots of application-specific blockchains were the way to go. And Dan Larimer pursued the latter, and Vitalik pursued the former. And I think ultimately, obviously, Vitalik won that argument. Uh, but that was the, you know, that divergence uh, is what led to Steam and BitShares, Dan Larimer's project. Um, and so because it was application-specific, uh, Things did break. Things always break. There are always bugs. Nobody writes perfect code. And so we did have to hard fork 23 times. And as you see in the Ethereum space, hard forks are a nightmare for everyone. 
But because it was so exaggerated in the Steam context and so difficult because the system really wasn't designed for upgrades, uh, so much of our time and energy got sucked up in coding up, um, promoting, saying, hey, this hard fork needs to get adopted. Here's the code. It's great. And then dealing with the battles and the fighting and the backroom dealing just so that we can make the blockchain better. And then you would execute the hard fork and there'd be a halt, there'd be a bug, and that would be, you know, there, there are these, they, they, hard forks are the most insidious blocker on progress. And they really introduce a tremendous risk of centralization and bugs. And it's, it's really un, un, underappreciated because none of the blockchain projects out there want to draw attention to this. So if you look at Ethereum and their, um, one of their recent Ethereum improvement proposals that's designed to reduce the gas fees, miners don't want it. The hash power behind this improvement proposal is a minority. And yet, it's going to go through. How? We don't know. Um, nobody wants to push on that, to push back on that, because it's obviously a good upgrade. It'll reduce the fees uh, because the fees are unusable. It makes uh, Ethereum unusable. Unusable, but more, <laughs> but more importantly, far higher than they need to be. Why? Why are they so much higher than they need to be? This is something people in the Ethereum space never want to talk about. Nobody ever wants to talk about the weaknesses in their protocol, but they want you to adopt the fix. So there's a fix that's coming that's going to make everything better, but let's not ask what's broken about the current system. I, don't get me wrong. I love Vitalik, and I think Ethereum's a great project, but everything has its fault. So anyway... We see in Ethereum the headache that hard forks cause, um, and our experience in Steam really exaggerated that. And so we were we really didn't want to have to deal with hard forks anymore. And fortunately, a number of technological innovations did come out during our time at Steemit, and this level of trauma led us to find a solution. And it's a very elegant, very simple solution. And that solution is to make everything a smart contract. And if everything is a smart contract, and all of the smart contracts can be upgraded in band, which is some, that's not unique to to Coinos, but it's also not common. Um, But so that's that's another. So, what uh, other blockchain protocols have modular upgradability as a feature? No, we invented modular upgradability. Some, the inspiration to give credit where it's due to modular upgradability is system contracts on EOS. So what EOS did was, and I'm and I'm kind of just guessing here. Um, but they de- designed a monolithic system, just like traditional blockchains like Ethereum and Bitcoin. And then I think what happened was Dan Larimer was like, you know what? There might be some things 
that we want to change. Oh, an- another innovation that EOS really pioneered was in-band upgradable smart contracts. So smart contracts that could be modified and upgraded and changed without necessitating a hard fork, which is still the case on Ethereum. Um, and again, not a knock on Ethereum. That's how it was designed. Um, but so, you know, we were able to take that innovation. Um, and really what modular upgradability means is being able to take innovations from other projects. It's about stealing. It's about stealing other features rapidly. And so what they did was they said, hey, you know, we have in-band upgradable smart contracts. We have this logic that um, is part of the system, but that will probably need to be changed. Instead of implementing it natively in the blockchain, what if we implement it in smart contracts, in a special kind of smart contract? And so they developed the system contract. And so while we were developing Coinos, we were constantly going, well, you know what? We might want to change that. There might be a bug in there. Um, let's put it in a system contract. Let's put it in a system contract. And eventually one day I just said, hey, guys, what if we put the consensus algorithm in a system contract? And people were like, no, 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 no. You can't do, you can't do that. Uh, you, you, you know? And I said, why? Why not? Can we technically do it? And the answer was, sure, yeah, we can put anything into a smart contract. And with the benefit of Wasm uh, and Wasm virtual machines, which are becoming very, very fast, we we realized that we could put far more load onto the smart contract layer, um, move practically all of the system logic into the, into the smart contract layer. And of course, there were technologies and tools that we needed to invent to make this work. And that was a big chunk of the work that we did over the last year. Um, but the result of that work is that what we get for slightly more technical users is the equivalent of a kind of BIOS, which is a basic input-output system, like an operating system, like a tiny little operating system, and then a larger operating system that can be upgraded with patches. And so that's kind of what we've developed. That's part of the reason why it's called Coinos is because it takes the analogy of an operating system to the ultimate level for a blockchain. Ah, it makes sense. I didn't know that. So, uh, CoinOS got it. So OS. Yeah, operates. I mean, it's, cool. it's not. So, it's not CoinOS. It's CoinOS, uh, which it, which is Greek yeah, for yeah, common. Yeah. But you know, it has multiple meanings. So, what do you think the single biggest drawback that smart contract platforms uh, have today? I think it comes down to accessibility. It they are very difficult to work with. If you're a great TypeScript developer, if you're a great Go developer, you can't work with a blockchain. And let's clarify, there's kind of two ways to work with a blockchain. You can work on the blockchain itself. You can suggest upgrades to the the protocol itself. This is happening all the time on Ethereum and Bitcoin. And then there's also writing smart contracts, writing decentralized applications. And so a lot of uh, general purpose blockchains are written in esoteric programming languages like C++. There's an increasing trend towards using things like Haskell, which is Cardano, and Rust, which is Polkadot. And of course, as is always the case, these people believe that 
those programming languages will be super used in the future. Um, but that's rarely the case. And C++ remains king. Um, and, and even C++ is inaccessible to, to developers. Now, Coinos, the, the Coinos blockchain is written in C++, but Coinos uses a microservice architecture, which means that the node is broken up into lots of little programs, which aren't necessarily written in C++. And so while the blockchain might be written in C++, at least it's smaller, which means it's easier for developers to go in and understand. Um, but also because all of the other parts of the blockchain are broken out into different microservices, like a P2P microservice, a block store microservice, a mempool microservice, the developer can go and find the piece that's most interesting to them and work on that. And a lot of those microservices are written in Go, which is a lot more common. And one of the, as I mentioned before, multi-language support is, is one of the things that Coinos is basically engineered around. And so developers will actually be able to write microservices in programming languages that they already know. And so that'll make working with Coinos on the node level far more accessible. And actually, we expect people like DevOps developers and people who are actually going to be running nodes or scaling node infrastructure will probably write their own microservices and write those microservices in all kinds of different languages. And, and that'll be very accessible to them. But at the smart contract layer, that, that it, you have kind of a very similar problem. So on Ethereum, you have to work in Solidity, which is a, diff, which is a made up programming language. Uh, it's similar to C++, which is difficult for a lot. I believe it's similar to C++. But so you got to learn something. It's not easy. And there's all this other stuff that you have to learn in order to use the blockchain and write applications on it. With other blockchains, it's other programming languages. You'll see Rust sometimes. You'll see languages I've never heard of. Um, and so, of course, if you're just a great TypeScript developer, um, what do you do here? Uh, first of all, there's all this stuff you have to understand. And second of all, you have to write in a programming language that you're not comfortable with, which is both difficult and risky. And so that's why we've done so much work on multi-language support. And that's why we're already working on TypeScript support. Um, and TypeScript is just strongly typed JavaScript. And so very early on in the development of Coinos, developers will be able to write smart contracts in TypeScript, but they'll also be able to write microservices in TypeScript. And we think that that's going to be a game changer in terms of accessibility. And, you know, ultimately what we want to create and what we think we will create is an ecosystem where any developer of any skill level can come in and just begin working with Coinos. And they don't even need to understand all the other parts of the system. They can just focus on the part that they want to work with and then work in the programming language they already know. And so, you know, one of the big things you talk about is a feedless blockchain. You know, can, can you kind of share a little bit more behind the idea of a feeless blockchain, why you decided to build one, but but more importantly, why, like, what does a feeless blockchain enable that another blockchain doesn't? And so, you know, what I mean by that is like Solana and Binance Smart Chain 
are very low fee, right? You're talking cents or smaller than cents to move money around, right? They're not very expensive. And so, you know, why why is Coinos better or or ignoring Coinos, why is a fee-less blockchain better than even a low-cost blockchain? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there really aren't many fee-less blockchains there. So, I mean, when you say fee-less, you're kind of talking about Coinos, shockingly. I mean, that is a huge shock to us. And going back to your original question of why, why would you do this? Um, that was part of the reason why we're like, really, nobody did this while we were off in Steamland. Um, so, you know, we are the fee-less blockchain option, or we will be, we think. And, you know, this this kind of ties into the last question, a point I wanted to make in, in, in the last, my answer to the last question, which is there's a strong connection between complexity and accessibility. Complicated systems are very difficult to use. Um, for developers, for end users, complexity is a big source of friction. And simple systems are much more likely to be adopted, to be used, because they're easy to understand. In addition to being typically efficient and low cost, um, sim- simple solutions are almost always superior, more scalable, more performant, easier to use. Um, and that does tie into the feelessness um, because it's about removing friction from the user experience, from the developer experience. An unbelievable amount of time and energy, development energy, goes into working around the fees, minimizing the fees, representing the fees. And those fees introduce a tremendous amount of cognitive load into the user experience. Um, You can hide it, but it's still there. And when you see your balance diminish over time, that is very unpleasant. And if it's not necessary, why have it? If low fees are good, why not no fees? If no fees are possible, why didn't you do it? Is it because you couldn't? Um, Because we can and we will. Now, that's not to say that there's no place for fee-based solutions. Personally, I believe that Ethereum will own that space, um, and I'm sure it will be a massive space. Um, As far as those, those other solutions, they may be great, and they may be tremendously useful. And I can talk about them specifically. They're they're interesting projects, both of them, but we could, you know, I think you and I could go down a gazillion rabbit holes. So I think I I would just say that, I don't know. Oh, 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 yes. Sorry. Brain fart. It's late for me, by the way. It's later than it is for you. So, you know, I'm working with a handicap. How many of the apps you use today did you pay a small fee for? Any? So for example, did you use Twitter? Did you use Facebook? Did you use a messaging app? You know, did you use a meditation app? We're using apps right now. You know, actually we did pay fees for some of these apps, but you know, we're paying for quality here. Um, You do, obviously there is a place for fees, um, but most of the apps that you use and most of the actions that you take within those applications Uh, you're not charged any fee for. uh, And that's because the developers of these platforms and these technologies understand that the real money is to be made in network size 
and by offering products and services that are far more expensive than these fees for using the network. The cost of using a decentralized network, especially a highly efficient and high performance network like Coinos, is very low. That's what you see represented in blockchains like BSC and Solana is that the actual cost is low. So all you're doing by introducing any fee is minimize it is putting a limit on growth. The other important point that I wanted to make with fee with low fee blockchains is that they are always low fee right up until the fees go high. And the reason for that is it's a kind of interesting term. I think it's kind of fun. It's called oversubscription. And basically what is often happening is that you, the user, are kind of oversubscribed. I've got a bunch of ether. Uh, I want to use it. Nobody's really doing anything on Ethereum right now or Solana or BSC. So the fees are low. And so I feel like I can use this blockchain at very low cost. And then crypto kitties happen. And now everybody wants to use it all at the same time. And so you have all this ether you want to use. You thought the fees were low. Now something actually happens where you want to use it. Everybody floods in, the fees become high, and now everyone's scrambling to respond to these fees spiking. And so by implementing the blockchain fearlessly, that actually gives us very powerful tools for stabilizing usage of the blockchain, smoothing out the user experience, and ensuring that these spikes in user activity don't impact to such a degree the user experience of the blockchain. And so how do you actually accomplish having a feeless blockchain? I mean, it sounds, you know, like, you know, it's so good to be true that there must be some trade-offs, right? And so so what are those trade-offs? Yeah, so for your audience, um, who, who, you know, I feel like is financially very literate, economically very literate, um, I, I wouldn't normally describe it like this, but the short version is that we, Coinos does charge you a fee, but it's a fee in opportunity cost. So what happens is that you have to hold coin in order to use the blockchain and to perform fearless transactions. And so what happens is you submit a transaction and the blockchain uses a calculation to determine how many, how mu- how many of your coin tokens need to be locked which means you can't transfer them in exchange for performing that transaction. And so MANA, uh, which is a, a concept that we borrowed from World of Warcraft, you know, it means like health, it means energy. MANA is this abstraction that we created to help um, regulate this experience. When you perform a transaction, uh, so you can imagine every coin is having mana inside of it. And when you perform a transaction, some amount of mana gets consumed. And based on how much of that mana gets consumed, 
your coin gets locked. And so now you can't transfer it. So imagine you have 100 coin, you do something, and the blockchain says, hey, you know what? That costs 20% of your mana. Well, now 20 of your coin you can't transfer for, let's say, five days. It's pick, pick a number. We don't know this yet. It, this hasn't been implemented yet. Uh, and it can be changed without a hard fork. So this is like a community setting. So now you don't have to think about it. What's happening is, hey, you know that 80 coin? You can transfer it. You can get rid of it. You can sell it. You can't get rid of the 20, at least not for five days. And that's the price that you paid for performing that transaction. If you didn't want to give up the liquidity of those tokens for five days, you shouldn't have performed the transaction. So that's basically how, how it would work. And so here's another John Rice question, which is that, you know, John says you're building for a two-sided marketplace. So you're facing the same challenges as many tech companies. To get users, you need applications. To get apps, you need developers. And to get developers, you need users. How are you planning to work on attracting both developers and users? It's a great question. Hey, can you hear that beeping? Yeah, I can hear the beeping a little bit. It's not too bad. It just stopped. It was driving me. Insane. <laughs> um, but I heard the question and I'll answer the question. Um, the two-sided marketplace. Attracting I'm sure John's you- asked you already anyways. So, Yeah, yeah, I'm prepared. No, and that is the question. And, and man, I mean, countless, countless community It's the members. question for every blockchain, right? It's yeah. not just, you know, for you guys. It's for any blockchain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to be honest, our approach is to, to focus on developers and building a great developer experience. And we believe that if you have great decentralized applications, you will attract users. Now, there's a caveat to that, which is that, you know, a lot of people ask us, how are you going to incentivize these people? And we are going to incentivize them, but it's through the free transactions. Because we're in a situation where every other blockchain is so expensive to use and does have fees, simply by offering a platform that doesn't have fees, what's happening is that both users and developers are getting a financial benefit because they're using applications that aren't costing them money. And so we believe that that will actually be a pretty strong incentive to bring developers and users over, Um, but it will also enable developers to create applications with really great user experiences, much greater user experiences than people have access to now. I mean, let's be honest, the user experience on blockchain-based applications suck ass. They suck ass. So if we can offer decentralized applications that don't suck ass and are free to use, we think that that is enough to bring great developers and bring great users. How did, how did Windows uh, grow a, a great user base? How did Apple grow a great user base? You know, great products, great operating systems. That's our plan. <laughs> And so what are the token economics that incentivize people to invest in Coinos and how do you attract liquidity to the project? So I'm assuming that the, the main token economic is being able to actually, you know, you need tokens to actually use the blockchain itself, which is kind of the, the main incentive you know, mechanism to be actually holding coin. Um, but, but how do you actually attract 
liquidity, right? For for any project to, to be successful, you do need to have a level of speculation, right? Because without speculation, it becomes very, very expensive to actually acquire any token. And you can have you know significant slippage on the price. So how do you plan on attracting that initial liquidity? Yeah, absolutely. That that's a that's a great question. And we'll just, you know, repeat that old disclaimer that this is an investment advice. Coinos isn't a security, and I'm not going to explain to you how you're getting this guaranteed profit return by buying coin today. That's not what, what I'm going to be talking about. But you did ask a great question. There is an answer. Um, and, and I'll tell you the way that we kind of think about it in terms of designing the token economy. I think the way we look at it is there's three parties that you need to incentivize. In classical economics, we talk about the three factors of production. Uh, it's labor, it's capital, and it's land. But that has changed over the years. It's gone from land to industry. It's infrastructure. In the blockchain space, that actually still holds pretty well. You've got infrastructure providers who are node operators. They're the people running the network. They're producing blocks. Then you have developers who are building the applications that are running on top of the infrastructure, the buildings, right? So infrastructure, they're providing the roads, the foundations. Developers are building the buildings, the applications that people are actually going to go into and use. And then there's capital. There's long-term investors. Yes, there's speculators, but they kind of wash out. It's the long-term investors that you're, I think, you're primarily interested when you're talking about token economics. You're talking about people who are putting in valuable money, putting in capital, sacrificing the liquidity of that capital in return for a guaranteed yield in the future. And so the way that Coinos uh, is designed, will be designed, or at least the designs that we're going to release to the community, it's going to be a discussion, it's going to be a group decision. Um, but the designs that we're going to propose will will have a, year, uh, a token inflation. Uh, so there will be new tokens created every year. And those tokens, those new tokens will be divided between block producers and stakers. We'll call them stakers. That's the traditional term. Um, the bondholders might wind up being a more accurate term for our implementation, but it's basically stakers. And so on the one hand, you'll have people who are running blockchain nodes, producing blocks, and in it, as they produce valid blocks, the blockchain will reward them with some of the inflation. We'll give them little prizes for producing valid blocks in the form of coin from the inflation. On the other side, there will be the stakers who will be locking up capital uh, in exchange for an express stable return over time. I did mention the developers um, and on a blockchain, there's there's just users. Developers are users, end users are users. They're, they're addresses. We can't say who's a user or who's a developer. Um, and this is where Mana, I think, really shines um, because it's really hard to say 
what user is adding a lot of value, right? Locked up capital adds objective measurable value. And we can use markets to create prices on these things. Producing valid blocks is objectively valuable. It's critical to the functioning of the ecosystem. Making a great dApp, how valuable is it? How do we know? I mean, the way you determine the value of an application is its revenue, is how much profit it makes. It doesn't really have to do anything with the blockchain itself. You should sell products and you should make money. And that's how you know your application is valuable. And so what Mana enables us to do is, is, is actually to incentivize these people in a measurable way. And again, it's in opportunity cost. So if you perform a transaction, that means you didn't stake and you didn't produce a block and those would have earned you yields. And so the value of those transactions that you perform, whether you're a developer or a user, are how, you know, and, and you know, what you sacrificed, the value of those transactions is what you sacrificed and you got that value. And so you users are incentivized, but it's not a direct incentive. And so that's basically how the, the token economics of Coinos will probably work. And so something that you didn't mention before, I think you kind of alluded to, is the fact that Coinos doesn't have a pre-mine, or there was no pre-mine, uh, and that the Coinos group actually had to go out and market by their share of tokens. So can you kind of you know hit on that very quickly? And, and, and what, what the reason for that is and what the incentive that creates is. Yeah. Did you say market something? Market buy. Like you had to buy it on the free market. Yeah. yeah. It's like market. We, what market? No, market, <laughs> mark, market buy. Market buy. Yeah. 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 We had to expend a good deal of capital just acquiring our, our token uh, because we did a Bitcoin style uh, fair mine. We actually developed a pretty innovative solution that for you know people who want to really dive in, it actually very closely resembles how we're going to implement the mana system. Um, but basically, you submit proof of work caches to the Ethereum blockchain, uh, and you can uh, acquire coin uh, through performing that work. And so you perform the work off chain, you submit the hashes, and, and you earn coin that way. And we're, we're now at over 99 million coin mined distributed across 1,300 addresses, and that's out of uh, 100 million total. So that's it's a very exciting phase for us. And the reason that we did that is partly based on our experience at Steemit, um, but also because we believe very much in decentralization. We believe in the disruptive potential of Coinos, and we believe that it can be this common layer, this, this new kind of internet with native money and native currencies that are fast and fearless. And we really didn't want to limit the growth potential of that network in any way. And so there are technical things that you can do to delimit the growth of that network. Uh, but we've seen from our experience and our just you know in insane length of time in this industry, how damaging how you launch can be. And so you brought up Solana, right? And so I think that I've heard numbers like 83% of Solana tokens are held by insiders. I'm never going to use Solana because of that. 
maybe I'm weird, but that's a, that's a deal breaker for me. I believe in decentralization. I believe in projects that represent those values. Bitcoin, Ethereum, they did that ICO. I wish they hadn't, but it's fine. So, but we saw ourselves in this position where this is our shot. Ethereum was Ethereum. It was its moment in time. There are so many layer one solutions, as you've said. You can't do anything wrong. At least that's my view. You have to do, you have to be perfect now. Um, Ethereum is out. Ethereum 2.0 is coming. We can't replicate what they've done. We have to be better than them. We have to, we have to launch perfect. Our launch has to be beyond reproach. And so that's why we, we did the Fairmine. That's why we, and it tied into accessibility, which is a real core value of ours. And we were confident that if we launched with a proof of work Fairmine, then people who knew us, who believed in us, and who shared our vision for you know the next generation of blockchain technology, that they would be able to acquire these tokens at an affordable price whether it's by mining with their CPUs or just by buying them off of Uniswap. And ultimately, that's how things played out. It wasn't necessarily as smooth as we were hoping it would go. Um, but for a long time, you could, get, you could get coin for a cent, and it's still only at 12 cents. And so that means that, hey, you just have no excuse. If you believe in Coinos, if, if you see what we're doing, if you see the value in what you're doing, it is accessible, and that was that was very important to us. And so one question that we ask all of our guests, it is the Fundamental Value Podcast, after all, is how do you define fundamentals for digital assets, and, and does that depend on the token? And it's a very difficult question, which is why I ask it to everyone. It's funny. It doesn't feel like a difficult question to me. Um, it, it feels like, I feel like it's d- difficult because of how few projects have it. So, so I, you know, you, you shared with me this question, uh, and I, I thought of this analogy uh, that I just fell in love with uh, that, that helps explain my views on fundamental value. And I imagine two guys on a plane who love the feeling of flight. They both jump out of the plane at the same time. One guy has a parachute on. The other guy doesn't. The guy with the parachute says, they're falling. The guy with the parachute says, why don't you have a parachute on? And the guy's like, well, that's just going to slow me down. I want to go faster. And the other guy says, but you're going to die. You're going you're gonna to hit the ground because of gravity. And the other guy says, oh, I don't believe in gravity. To me, gravity is fundamental value. So you have people saying, we're going to go faster. We're going to have fast transaction speeds. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And it's not about fundamental value. It's not about building a system uh, where the token economics are sound, uh, that that the utility of the platform is obvious. And so... The token economics and the utility of the platform are designed to work together so that as the network grows and as usage of the network grows, the price of the asset 
should appreciate in value. And that value will correlate to some degree, probably, with a price. But no one knows, no one can predict price. All you can do, all you can understand and predict and influence is value. (laughs) Uh, So to me, it's like, what else is there but fundamental value? And I just think that this is a result. I've never lost money in an ICO. I've barely lost any money in the blockchain space. And it's because I've never invested in any project that I didn't see the fundamental value proposition. And so maybe I could have been a gazillionaire and maybe I missed a ton of opportunities, but none of those projects last. And yeah, there's not that many that have fundamental value, but I think that this is emblematic of bubble thinking where you start going, maybe fundamental value doesn't exist. Maybe gravity doesn't exist. I'm going super fast. I haven't hit the ground yet. So maybe the rules don't apply to me anymore. Yeah, well, it's it's funny because they, they they seem to not with some coins, you know, you know, just looking at back at some 2017, 2018 ICO tokens that, you know, my favorite one, and I've talked about this probably three or four times on the podcast, because it's just so stupid to me, is DentaCoin. The uh, the cryptocurrency, the, the blockchain for the dental industry hit a two and a half billion in market cap in 2018, you know, was seemingly dead and is now back to about a hundred million dollar market cap. And, uh, you know, um, I don't I don't think I need to say anything else. So, you know, and, and in that vein to my last question is what is the most either the most ridiculous memory you have from 2017 or 2018, you know, the ICO bubble or the dumbest coin that you remember seemingly having no semblance of gravity and just going up forever. I mean, is there is there something you remember where you're like, wow, this is so dumb. Why are people throwing their money behind it? It could be either. You can answer either of those questions. It's up to you. Yeah, you know, it's it's a tough one for me to answer because, you know, my experience of that time was, hey, I'm going to spread my stuff out among all this stupid stuff uh, and not really pay attention to kind of any of it. Um, I, I did want to make one last point uh, on kind of the previous question, which is just that, you know, for, for me... For me, what it, what it all comes down to is the team and the project and what motivates them. And what motivates us is that we love working on blockchain. Going back to that layer one question, it's what we do. Building blockchains is in our blood. We love this stuff. It's the perfect combination of programming and economics. Uh, and you get to play God. Uh, And if you have the skills to do it, man, it's hard to resist doing it. And we want to do it for the rest of our lives. And we're building Koinos to be this foundational tool that we can leverage to build a great company that that enables us to work in blockchain for the rest of our lives. And I think what you see clear as day, dominant in the space, is projects who are saying, I want to build something that makes me a gazillionaire today, and then I'm going to go live on a beach. I'll produce that protocol for you if you give me $100 million, and then in two years, we're going to go do something else. They basically say outright that if we do our jobs right, we never do anything again after this. 
It's perfect. It's decentralized. It's in your hands. And we're done. And we can just be rich. We want to work. We're blue collar. We're kind of like, I like to think of us as like a blue collar blockchain team. We don't have fancy degrees. We're not academics. We just ship product, you know, product that works. Um, and so as far as 2017, 2018, I mean, I think the ridiculous thing about, about that question, it's not a ridiculous question, is that in, in blockchain time, I don't remember three years ago. That might as well be 30 years ago. Do you know how many things have happened to me in the last three years? I mean, I got Justin Sund. You know, I, I, we went through uh, 10 hard forks. You know, uh, we blew up from a team of 10 to a team of 50 with 20 blockchain developers. And six months later, we reduced our, our company by 70%. And we had to deal with that. We almost died. The, the company almost went bankrupt. Um, and, and then we had to claw our way back from that for a year. And then Justin Sun came in and destroyed everything. You know, so I was, we were really preoccupied with Steam. And I, I became far more ignorant uh, about the space as a whole during that time uh, because we were so focused on what we were doing. And that, that's what part of what was so exciting about actually coming out of it. And, and I really thank Justin Sun uh, in that situation. I honestly am super grateful for that happening because we all left at the same time. We all went out into the space at the same time and got to say, hey, what's cool? What's going on? What's the newest thing right now and, and what's missing? And we got to approach it with like fresh eyes because we've been in our steam bubble for so long getting this unparalleled experience, we're hands-on with the blockchain, learning the ins and outs of this blockchain. And if we hadn't done that work, we wouldn't have had the knowledge to be able to take all of that code and rewrite it as microservices and build the first blockchain on a microservice architecture, which, you know, maybe two years from now, maybe five years from now, people will say, holy shit, they were the first people to do that. That was brilliant. Awesome. Well, Andrew, really appreciate your time. You know, appreciate the deep dive. This is our first, uh, my first time bringing on a blockchain uh, onto the podcast. And I think it was a great, uh, you know, great experience. You know, learned a lot from you uh, about Coinos. And, you know, I think we're all interested in seeing how this layer one race plays out. You know, you know whether, you know, it, it be you guys or it, it be Solana or Avalanche or Cosmos or all these different layer ones or even some of the new layer ones. Uh, you know, that are coming out, uh, you know, you know, very soon or, or near some of these up, up and coming ones. So appreciate your time. And uh, thanks for joining us. And, and the last thing is, where can people find you guys online? To learn more about Coinos, go to Coinos.io. And you can follow me on Twitter at Andrarchy. That's A-N-D-R-A-R-C-H-Y. It's like Andrew and Anarchy, but it's meaningless. Don't read into that. Um, I'll throw that in the description. <laughs> <laughs> it's meaningless, really. Uh, it was just meant to sound cool. Um, <laughs> maybe not the best decision. Um, but yeah, and, and you know, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see me link to articles and our website and everything. So that's, that's really the best way to, to find us. We have a Discord. We have a Telegram, if that's what you like. You can find it at Coinos. 
That's koinos with a K. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you.